Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud and Out podcast. We are your hosts, Andreas and Michael Wittig. We have been building on AWS since 2009. Follow along as we develop products like BucketV, Marbot, and HyperEnv and learn from our practice. This is episode number 84 and we are recording this on January the 11th in 2024. In case you're watching this live on YouTube, uh, feel free to ask your questions and we will answer them during or at the end of the show. So, Andreas, that's the first episode in the new year. So what, what, is, uh, on your, um, what is on your AWS uh, mind and what, what can we talk about? Looking back at 2013 and also what happened at reInvent, I stumbled about a summary that Sumyai um, has created and published uh, on the internet. So we put the link in the show notes. Uh, this is basically a visualization, a chart showing all the AWS launches over the years, so the service launches over the years. And I looked into that, and uh, I think what's quite interesting, if you look at the chart, uh, how many services were, have been released per year, there were only five new service launches uh, last year, so in 2023. Uh, and the peak was 2017 with uh, 36 service launches. So quite a difference. And so you basically can see we, it has reached the peak, uh, and now um, the yeah, the, the pace they are launching new services is slowing down significantly. Um, of course, I would say it's maybe not 100% fair, or it's, it's maybe hard to, to measure <laughs> um, the output of a company based on their service launches, because how do you define a service launch? So AWS uh, sometimes releases just big new features as part of a new service. So think about SageMaker or some like these services where they just add significant features uh, over the years, but not a new service. But yeah, but I think the the chart shows a little bit what we um, observe uh, as well over the years that the pace or AWS is basically slowing down, uh, and the exciting announcements at reInvent are not too many those days. So <laughs> that's probably what I would um, summarize from yeah. that. I mean, the, what I find interesting is that the headcount is definitely uh, increasing. So they uh, employ more people than in 2017, right? So they seem to need more people to keep everything up and running, which, I mean, makes sense as well, because they just, like, as larger the workloads get, they need more people and they have other problems to, to solve just to make everything continue to work. Uh, but... It's it's definitely um, also what I kind of observe that that there's not much not much enthusiasm and not much going on inside AWS as well. So um, yeah, that's interesting. But I mean, on the other hand, to be honest, I mean, if they release thirty five services every year, I mean, yeah. at some point they they just they figured it out, right? I mean, they they just solved all the infrastructure problems. I mean, they can now maybe offer for every kind of industry some special solution and call that a service uh, that could be an option but um, I mean like the I mean they have this fin cloud or I, I don't know how everything is called like the for the manufacturers for health and for fin they have their solutions now but yeah I think from a service perspective I, I, I'm more happy with less uh, services um, 
compared to many services with 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 uh, lots of missing features so um, if they just focus on adding features that would be fine for me as well um, so yeah I, I think the metric is interesting and it what i also wanted to add is that in the in the last couple of years they stopped talking about this metric in the reinvent keynote right mm -hmm. um before that this is always the, like one of the first messages was the year-over-year -year growth and number of features released <laughs> Yeah. This was always the first two <laughs> slides and those slides are missing since I think two or three years. And <laughs> I mean, I always had this suspicion that probably those numbers are going down and now we basically have um, someone who kind of tracks the numbers and uh, of course the numbers are going down. That's why they are not uh, the first slide anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's marketing, <laughs> right? So it's <laughs> good news yeah. are announced. Telling good so, yeah. stories. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but, but speaking of announcements, so while going over my feed reader um, the past few days, I stumbled upon one announcement that I found at least uh, interesting, and this is um, AWS Cloud Shell now supports Docker. Um, so Cloud Shell is the feature where you can just launch a, a small shell inside the AWS management console in the browser, and it has AWS CLI pre-installed, um, some other tools, I, I don't uh, remember them all. I usually use the CLI mainly. and um, But now they have Docker available. And I found that quite interesting because, uh, Michael, so we, we, um, when we do trainings or demo sessions together with customers, it's always helpful to have an environment where everyone starts from the same place. So CloudShare could be inter is interesting there because everyone can spin it up easily in their AWS management console. And now having the ability to run Docker inside that shell is, is interesting because you can, I don't know, prepare a Docker image that you then um, give hand over to customers or trainees or whoever is participating in the session. So that's, that's really helpful, I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so what, there was another announcement in, in, uh, from CloudShell in the last month. So they also switched the operating system. They are now running mm -hmm. on Amazon Linux. Is it called 2022 or 2023? I can't remember it. I, mean, I think it's, it was started as 2022, but they released it in 2023. And then so that's why they renamed it. Oh, okay. That's okay. at least what I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, I think that that's possible that they renamed it because I was also yeah, confused by that. Okay, so I don't know if that has any bigger impact. I haven't noticed any, to be honest, but I, as you said, the only thing that I do is I run simple CLI commands there. Uh, mostly for in our documentation to kind of help customers to run those uh, commands without installing the CLI and configuring it and everything. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, Michael, um, during reInvent, there was an interesting announcement, especially for us and all other sellers in the AWS marketplace. And this is now in effect since, um, so I think, since last week. So, AWS reduced the AWS marketplace fees. So that is when you sell through the marketplace, um, you pay a fee um, to AWS for providing that marketplace. And um, what's interesting is they reducing the fee for uh, software as a service and data products to three percent. Um, so we run software as a, or we sell software as a service products through the marketplace, um, Marbot. And so this is uh, good news for us because now the fee um, decreases and. Um, That's, that's a good thing. And also an interesting, a really interesting move is in the AWS marketplace, there is a feature called private offers. So basically a seller can 
create a private offer for uh, a customer and you can do custom pricing by doing that basically. And um, what's interesting here is AWS seems to push those private offers because they are also reducing the prices for all private offers. And the fee for private offers under a million is now 3%. And then it goes down um, to 1.5% um, for offers larger than $10 million. So that is interesting if you sell any product on the AWS marketplace, because if you now do those through private offer, you are cutting down the fee um, to 3% or even less. So that is interesting for all other products. <laughs> so for example, BucketDB, um, because we there can now um, grant yeah, private offers and reduce our fees for the marketplace. So that is uh, very interesting news for all those who sell products through the AWS marketplace. The other interesting thing, Michael, is the fees are basically uh, confidential information. <laughs> so as a seller, you're not allowed to talk about the fees, but now they announced it publicly. So now it's out in the world. So now you can at least mention the fees for those <laughs> ty product types. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, they seem to assume that there are private offers with a volume over than $10 million. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder what kind of They're software that is um, that they sell. Yeah, Michael, that's not us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's right. Because so I was thinking, okay, I don't know what it is that's worth so much money uh, that's sold yeah. over the AWS marketplace. I mean, that's kind of... That's significant, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it must be somehow a, a kind of off-the-shelf product, right? I mean, there's not much of customization possible using that kind of mechanism uh, so there's mm -hmm. no consulting engagement combined with it and things like that and they just pay 10 millions without kind of asking many questions i don't know uh, so mm. <laughs> i don't know if that is wishful thinking or if that actually happens <laughs> I, uh, I have no I idea michael yeah good question but it's interesting yeah. yeah so andreas talking about um one of our products um bucket av right so that's the uh, antivirus for amazon s3 solution uh, i was working on that um for actually, I started uh, um, end of December working on that feature. Or to be to be more honest, we 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 created a proof of concept. Uh, I think during summer. So let me first talk about the feature and then talk about what I kind of discovered. So we offer an asynchronous API, so you can send a request to us. Then we scan your file on S3, or we download it from an uh, internet accessible uh, endpoint. Um, and and then when we are done, we send you or we invoke a callback URL that you define. So that is what we call an asynchronous process, right? So you send us your job, we return immediately that we are working on it, and once we are done, we uh, we call a webhook kind of. So that was what we had, and we know many customers before that ask us about a synchronous API. So they want to send us a file either on S3 or directly the binary, and then they want to wait. The keep the HTTP connection open, the, re the request, and then in the response, they want to know if this was clean or infected. So that's kind of what they wanted, our customers. So I was working on that in the summer, then we discovered, okay, that's kind of, it's really a different game than, than the, the SQS approach, the asynchronous approach. And we kind of, okay, we postponed it. We said, okay, it's possible, but it, it really needs some many adjustments inside our system because it was optimized for a kind of um, a worker mode uh, reading from SQS. So what I did in December, I started to, again, implement a synchronous API. And one thing that I was running into that I had not uh, in my mind when I enabled it is that 
The way the connection draining feature of the application load balancer works together with the lifecycle hooks of an autoscaling group. So let me explain the two features and then I, I, I explain how the two work together. So what is connection draining? And you might know this feature from other load balancers and the way that the application load balancer implements connection training is, I would say, this is what you would usually uh, label as the naive approach or like the simple implementation kind of. So they basically wait. So if you set connection training to 60 seconds, they will stop accepting new connections and they just wait for 60 seconds before they shut down the whole thing. So even if there are no connections to the load balancer, they still wait for 60 seconds. So they don't track the connections kind of. Okay, that's connection draining. So this avoids basically during, for example, a rolling update or during a scale in, uh, sorry, a scale up, no, a scale in, that you interrupt um, the user requests. So that's good. So we usually enable that on an application load balancer. So we also have on app, app, um, or auto scaling groups uh, a feature called lifecycle hooks, and this basically means that you could either during startup of an instance or during the termination of an instance. You can run custom code and then notify the autoscaling group that you are done and it can now really terminate the instance. And that's what we do. So when we receive a terminating lifecycle hook, we stop uh, reading new messages from SQS, but we still process the in-flight request. And once we are done with all the messages, then we send the autoscaling group a, a signal and say, okay, we are done, continue with termination. So this was what we had, right? So we had an autoscaling group with lifecycle hook from our SQS um, setup. And for all our other examples or all our other application load balancer examples that we had, we use connection draining. So basically I put the two pieces together, right? So what I noticed soon is that the lifecycle hooks triggers at more or less at the same time where the connection training starts. So it doesn't wait for the connection training to be done. So basically what I had is I had a connection training running and I also had a lifecycle hook that was triggered. And this was kind of unexpected for me because I expected that the lifecycle hook is started after the connection training is finished, but that's not the case. So what is the solution? And um, basically what you do is you turn off a connection training in the, in the RLB uh, target group. So you, you don't use that feature, but you train the connections in your code. So your server that you run, your HTTP server, you basically uh, instruct it to not accept any new connections. And then um, you work on the existing requests and then um, you um, turn off um, uh, your signal back to the autoscaling group that you are done. So that's what you do. And this is how it works. And I was confused because the two don't, don't work together. Uh, um, um, so yeah, that's what I learned, Andreas. So that was kind of long, long story. But, but Michael, I, I didn't understand one aspect of yeah. it. So if the, autos, so the, the instance goes down, when does it get removed from the load balancer, from the target group? Before the launch, uh, before the hook triggers or after? Before, that? yes. Ah, okay. Okay, so then it makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so it doesn't receive new, new, new requests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah then, when, then I understand it. <laughs> okay, okay yeah. makes sense. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so, so one other thing that happened during the years is um, that AWS announced they will put Aurora Serverless version 1 uh, end of life in December 2024. 20, uh, so uh, until the end of the year, you can still use it, but then they will shut down um, the service, which is an unlikely move for AWS. So there haven't been many services that they uh, are shutting down, but this seems to be um, one of them. So the issue with that is, so we did a review of Aurora Serverless version 2 uh, when it came out. I think it's uh, 
more than a year ago. Um, and there are two problems with Aurora Serverless version 2. The first one is um, the data API uh, was not available from the start. So the data API is important if you want to send um, um, SQL statements over HTTP API, so for serverless applications mostly. Uh, and this was not available from the start. So recently they released it um, for Postgres. So Aurora Serverless version 2 with Postgres now supports the data API, but the feature is still missing for MySQL workloads. So in a blog post, AWS promises to ship that soon, but it's, as far as I know, hasn't dropped yet. So we are still waiting for that, and hopefully this will um, come around within the next two months. Um, so this actually affects one of the projects where I've been using Aurora Serverless version 1. This is a serverless application um, that uses MySQL uh, as, the, as the engine. So I cannot migrate from version 2 to version 2 yet with this uh, application. And Michael, the other use case where we use uh, Aurora Serverless um, is an application that you have um, written and are using. And maybe you can go into the problems yeah. by moving to version 2 is not an, really an option there. So I think, I don't know how many years back, um, it's a really old application, maybe 15 or even longer um, um, years ago, I wrote a PHP application uh, to track my expenses. And I'm still using that today. But uh, today it of course runs on AWS, right? And it's a little over-engineered, at least from the infrastructure part, because it runs on, on Fargate, um, I think it runs on Fargate Spot to save some money. Um, and it also uses Aurora Serverless version 1 for the database. And I use a feature there that helps me to kind of uh, limit the costs or, or optimize the costs because version 1 Aurora Serverless can scale down to zero. So if there are no connections to the database, the database shuts down the compute layer. You stop paying for it. You only pay for um, the storage. And unfortunately, that feature is not available in version 2. <clears throat> so if you are using um, version 1 for very small workloads, like I do, then it's not a very good approach to migrate to version 2 because you will instantly pay uh, $44 US dollars per month for the minimum configuration of version 2. Um, while for an Aurora database um, with a, the smallest possible configuration, you'd, you'd just pay $30 US dollars per month. So it doesn't make any sense for those kinds of workloads anymore um, where you really have kind of no one is using it during the night and, and then like over the day, maybe a couple of people are using it. And to be honest, in the enterprise, that's a very, very, very popular pattern, right? I mean, there are many, many enterprise applications that more or less no one is using all the day. But I mean, if there is some of, someone using it, then they, they have some like some requirements um, and, and all those use cases are not possible anymore. And so that's also kind of a, a bad story. And Andreas, my understanding is that what happens is that basically on end of the year they will automatically turn every version one into version two uh, database right so i didn't know that okay i'm not <laughs> sure so maybe i'm wrong okay so let, then i have to double check that so i don't know it's really a pity that this um scaling down to zero is no longer available uh, and really the i really can't the use cases for Aurora serverless version two and also all the other serverless database offerings that have been announced recently i think you you only need those um, kinds of serverless databases if you have s workloads, steady workloads with very um, 
you have really high spikes during the day where you need to scale up significantly for short periods of time. Only then, in my opinion, it makes sense from a cost perspective to use serverless and it's no longer an option for those. Yeah, I, I would call them tiny workloads. Um, but but also, if you remember, <laughs> that's that's the other interesting story, I would say. So remember Werner's keynote. He talks about being really careful to use resources and stuff and now they just removed this option. So um, yeah, okay. Okay, I don't know. Doesn't of align course well it makes, with the story, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't align with the goal, of course, to increase revenue. That's the other problem with that. Okay. But yeah, okay, I mean, so this in, is the option. Let's see what's going around. <laughs> in that the regard, the Andreas, like AWS is trying to, to save every penny. Um, they recently announced that for Inspector, they now reduce the storage time, like that the finding is, is archived from 30 days to seven. And I mm -hmm. thought, I mean, how, <laughs> how big can the troubles be if you really have to <laughs> optimize on that level of, of, of cost cutting? I mean, Saving 75% yeah. of your finding storage and annoy customers with that message. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but yeah. 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 I mean, the config team on the other side, right? This is also a funny story that I always uh, um, like kind of smile when I see that they now add another ton of resources that you can archive in config for uh, like mm -hmm. crazy <laughs> amounts of money and then keep forever <laughs> in the archive of storage. I mean, that's really, I mean, yeah. What? I don't know. So. <laughs> so, so as far as I heard, uh, entitification has been word of the year in the US for 2023. And it's basically about the platforms grow. And when they grow too much, then it starts getting hard for first for the partners and then for all the customers. So yeah, yeah. So how's it called? Hopefully and certification <laughs> 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 okay but yeah, yeah. that aside so two, two, two small things about Terraform so I've learned another thing about Terraform mm -hmm. um, Terraform first of all we, we are using the AWS provider a lot of course we do And we're using it, um, for example, for Marbot, where we automatically configure monitoring configuration within AWS accounts. And recently, AWS announced a new region, uh, uh, CA West 1 in Canada. And I wanted to add this new region to Marbot so that it's also capable to deploy monitoring configuration in the new region. And what I stumbled upon is, uh, so we were using Terraform AWS provider major version 4, And the latest major version is five. So we were back uh, with the versions a little bit. So, and what I found out is, what I learned is that um, Terraform is only adding new features to the latest major version. So they are not backporting anything to um, past major versions. So that said, it is important to keep your Terraform providers and also module versions up to date. And I think in many, many Terraform projects that I look into, so our own and as well those from our consulting customers, all those versions are typically getting old very quickly. So uh, I think that is something you have to keep in mind. Um, so when a new major version comes out, you need to plan for updating um, your infrastructure as code projects and make sure you're staying up to date because otherwise you're running into issues if you have to quickly, for example, deploy to a new region or something. Uh, and even security patches, there's no real guarantee that they will backport them to older major versions. So that's what I've read in some of their readmes. So yeah, so I think that is important to know. 
And um, speaking about Terraform, um, good news, um, OpenTofu, the open source fork of Terraform, is now generally available with their latest release. Um, so I think now it's really safe to start switching from Terraform to OpenTofu, and that's definitely something um, we will do for our projects and also um, our consulting uh, customers asked about that already. Um, because what I learned is that um, enterprise customers that are using Terraform, they typically have teams that are responsible for making sure they meet all the, um, yeah, or they, they stay compliant with all those open source and other licenses of software they use. And those teams, they are focusing on what's the open source model Uh, open source license behind the different projects. Are they compatible with what we do here? And they have then strong rules inside the enterprise, what you can use and cannot use. And what I learned from at least our customers is um, that those uh, organizations, they, they tend to shy away from the business source license that HashiCorp is now using for Terraform and all their other products because it's just risky because there's room for um, discussion whether something falls under that license or not and they are definitely not willing for every project to check with legal of HashiCorp whether that fits or doesn't fit under those uh, uh, license terms. So I, I would expect that many, many enterprise customers will um, move from Terraform to OpenTofu within the next probably years <laughs> to, to get rid of this risk and those license risks in their workloads. Yeah, yeah that's a good point, Andreas. Um, and I mean, it makes sense. And I will, I'm, 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 I'm interested to see how this kind of um, works out because, I mean, now Terraform is adding features and OpenTofu is adding features. And the longer this kind of diverge, right? So they will then mm. add features that the other one doesn't and so on and so forth. And so it, get, it gets harder and harder to kind of roll that back for Terraform. But um, yeah, let's see. Um, I mean, what I also find interesting that the, the, the founder of HashiCorp, right? I mean, the, the initial founder <laughs> of HashiCorp, just a couple of weeks after this announcement with all these licensing <laughs> change and, and stuff, uh, just announced that he's now no longer uh, working at, 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 at his company. And I mean, he was not in charge for a couple of years, I think, before. Um, but I mean, I think that kind of tells everyone what's going on. I mean, there's some investors in that company that want to make some money and they don't probably understand how, how everything works with open source and communities and stuff. But yeah, we will see. So one other thing, Andreas, that I noticed today um, while updating the Amazon machine images of our open source CloudFormation templates is that the, the NAT instance, I mean, we have a template for NAT instance because, I mean, AWS tells everyone to update, upgrade to NAT gateways, but I mean, they are expensive. Um, that's kind of uh, the, more or less the only problem that most people have with them <laughs> um, compared with a NAT instance. And for some reasons, um, I mean, I'm not going to... Uh, talk about that anymore I, I talked about it before um, Amazon has not invested in updating the NAT instance AMI to their latest Amazon Linux uh, so it still runs on the very old Amazon Linux the first one version one so it was never updated to Amazon Linux 2 and it's also not updated to Amazon Linux 2023 um, what happened uh, on uh, January 1st is that Amazon Linux 1 is out of support so it does not receive security updates anymore 
And this includes the net uh, AMI, right? Because it's based on Amazon Linux 1. So basically, all the net instances running out there now have a problem because there are no patches anymore for them. Uh, so I don't know how that works out. Um, I mean, basically, if you run one of them, you, you're now forced to migrate to a NAT gateway or you have to create your own uh, NAT image, which is possible as well. But I mean, um, you have to do it. So yeah, let's see how that works out. If you're running one, uh, keep that in mind that you are officially not receiving any updates anymore. So it's not secure. It, I mean, if you have auto, uh, like kind of um, automation around that to patch it, uh, it will still patch it, but it's probably not going to patch anything anymore, right? Because there are no patches. <laughs> so keep that in mind. It's not secure anymore. <laughs> so that's um, a problem. So yeah, Andreas, I don't know what's your um, what's your opinion on that instances. You probably will explain me that we don't need them, but <laughs> in yeah, case we so, do, so, yeah, yeah, that, that definitely. I think there are some use cases, and probably there are definitely workloads out there where they still run NAT instances. Um, and so yeah, it's interesting that there is no good upgrade path here. Um, besides baking your own AMI, as far as I remember, the NAT get, the NAT instance AMI. The, probably it's only IP table configuration, uh, so it might not be too hard to build your own, but I don't know, of course, exactly what is uh, in there. So, um, yeah. Speaking about um, things that do not uh, work perfectly, <laughs> so there is one interesting uh, thing that I um, stumbled upon, um, which is um, AWS announced another way to log into EC2 instances. Um, and this is uh, EC2 instance connect endpoints. Um, those are sp special VPC endpoints that you can deploy to your um, VPC and subnets. And they um, allow you to SSH into uh, machines running in your VPC without the need uh, of opening um, um, port, for example, 22 for SSH or, and also without the um, SSM agent running on the machines, which is the other option that we typically use to, to connect with those machines. Um, and so I used it for debugging some networking issues. And what I stumbled upon is, um, so you deploy those EC2 instance connect endpoints to a subnet. And then I wanted to deploy it to two subnets in two different availability zones. <laughs> and I realized that it's not possible. The maximum um, EC2 instance connect endpoints that you can deploy per VPC is one. Um, so you have one network interface in that VPC that basically tunnels your traffic to the EC2 instances. And f from my understanding, the issue here is if there are any networking issues, for example, and in case of an AWS downtime, you want to connect to an instance running in another subnet, you might not be able to do so. And I found that quite um, frustrating actually because if you really want to use it for a production workload and you really the chances are quite high that during a downtime you need to log into a machine because those are the times where you I don't know want to uh, whatever you do on those <laughs> machines those legacy machines um, but but I think yeah that's that's interesting I don't I don't really understand what, where this is coming from I could not find anything in the documentation um, but yeah, so if anyone knows what's the reason for that or what's the workaround or how that is, uh, what's, the, yeah, what's the reason for that, I would like to know and learn about this. But first, it looks a little strange to me. Yeah, that's interesting, Andreas. I mean, that's uh, the details, right, as always. 
So I have I have good news for the end uh, of the show, Andreas. Um, so if, if there any are, are there any bad news that you want to share before then? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm okay. fine with the bad news. It's time for the good news. So we we realized that our YouTube channel has reached four thousand subscribers. So thank you very much for that. Um, so we are very happy um, how that works, and we receive. I mean more or less every day or maybe a couple of times per week we receive a comment of one of our videos with people that are um, mostly uh, very thankful for uh, the content that they um, uh, just watched and and asking questions and all kinds of things so that's really cool um, so thank you very much for for watching all the videos and for subscribing to the channel that's really uh, a, a nice a nice uh, kind of little little project that we launched and it it's it's it, it turned out quite 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 good andreas right yeah absolutely michael Perfect. all right so i think that's it we'll be back soon um subscribe to our newsletter podcast the youtube channel and um, make sure you're not missing any upcoming shows also we're looking for your feedback um hello at cloudonaut.io or find us on LinkedIn, Mastodon, or of course in the comments. You'll find all the links in the show notes and the video description. Uh, so thanks for watching and listening. Yeah, thank you. Bye.